Welcome to Is This Working? A podcast hosted by two best friends who have honest conversations about money, careers, and success. With me, Anna Codrarado. And me, Tiffany Philippou. This week, we're talking about toxic workplaces. Yes, we are. What a juicy subject we have for you today. And it is with great honour that we are joined today by a very special guest, Otago Wagba, who is the author of the Sunday Times bestselling book, Little Black Book, A Toolkit for Working Women, which was published in 2017. And more recently, Whites on Race and Other Falsehoods, published last year. Otega is also a speaker, brand consultant, and the founder of Women Who, a London-based multimedia platform aimed at creative women that operated from 2016 to 2020. She also hosts the Culture and Ideas podcast, In Good Company. Otega is with us today to talk to us about her brand new book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is part memoir, part cultural commentary, and in which she explores her own complicated relationship with money and what all of her experiences have taught her about the world around us. It's such a great chat and we really get into such a variety of topics. I'm I'm just so happy that we had the chance to sit down with Otega to have this conversation. Yeah, I was absolutely loved reading Otega's book and the book is juicy. Otega's very bold. She goes to places that no one's dared go before. And this conversation that you're about to hear, um, there are certainly some confronting moments and uncomfortable moments. And um, yeah, we really pull apart toxicity in the workplace, how privilege plays a role in the workplace. And we also talk about uh, the impact money has on friendship dynamics. So buckle up and enjoy the show. On with the show. Hello. Hi, Otago. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. We are so excited to have you here. Um, We both just absolutely devoured your book and we're really pumped to talk about it. Thank you. It's very exciting. Um, I uh, have actually just finished my own memoir and reading yours, I... um, First of all, I'll tell everybody. So Otega's book is called We Need to Talk About Money. And it's just so juicy and bold. And that's one of the things I love about following you on social media. Like you just you just have <laughs> you just say and do uh, say things that I would just never have the guts to say. And I find it really aspirational. Um, but what I was really curious about, so I'm currently in the process with my own memoir of like emailing people who are in it and asking if they're okay with it and all that sort of stuff. What was that process like for you? Oh, I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, there are p- various people who crop up in my book who aren't necessarily written about favorably. And I did, you know, anonymize every single person in my book, even my best friend who I've written about. I just changed his name because I just thought it's better for him. He's, you know, he still works in that industry. Um, and I was like, I'm not necessarily sure what the reception is going to be. So I think for your own sake, I'm just going to keep you anonymous. But um, in terms of other people and like former colleagues and stuff, I didn't, I didn't do that. The only, the only people who I did speak to were 
my parents, my mum, because obviously the book starts out with sharing, you know, a little bit of my childhood circumstances. And my parents are quite private people. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that they were comfortable with what I was sharing, because to an extent, in order to tell my own life story, particularly as it relates to money, I think there was an element of me having to tell their life story. So, you know, I, I sent it to my mum to read after I'd finished uh, like a sort of full first draft. Um, and she was fine with it and, you know, really liked the book. So that was good. And then there was one other person that I did give a heads up. I always refer to it as not asking permission, but just giving a heads up, who is a friend of mine who I write about and, and something that happened in the book, um, just a comment she made. And we are still really good friends. And I just wanted to let her know that that was in there and and we had a really good chat about it and she was really understanding and she understood why I'd included that story and and she also I think the the tricky thing about that was I hadn't broached it with her at the time so it was kind of the double whammy of having to be like by the way that comment you made at the time really pissed me off and I'm over it now but I am writing about it in my book um but we had a really like it was totally fine and and we're still as good friends as we were before so but apart from that I didn't I didn't talk to anyone. And I think also that was partly why I sort of anonymized everyone as well, because just from a legal point of view, if you are making people anonymous, then it's, uh, you can be a bit more truthful. I could keep talking about this, but um, yeah, it was just something that as I was reading, um, particularly around your work experiences and everything like that, I was just really, um, I know how hard it is to be very honest about things like that. So, um, and then also with regards to friendships and opening up those difficult conversations. So we really appreciate you doing that because it means we can read about it and learn and, and <laughs> yeah. So, You're um, very welcome. yeah. I mean, speaking of those bits about work, because really, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a memoir from the lens of money. And of course, work features really heavily in that because, I mean, to make a very obvious statement, work is how we earn our money. So of course, there's such big chunks of the book that are about work. And I had so much identification with your writing about your, well, all of your work experiences, but particularly your early career experiences. And, you know, you talk about the about office life and how it was a crashing disappointment and a far cry from the pencil skirts and the pitch meetings that you thought it would be. And those passages took me right back into my first job. And I just vividly remember sitting there, bored out of my mind, trying to eke out the project that was way too simple, that kind of trying to make it stretch over the whole course of the day in between G chatting Tiffany. And I just remember thinking, I had that thought, is this it? Is this what the fuss was about? Is this what all of the kind of pressure at school and at university and everything was supposedly pointing to just getting a job, getting a job? Um, And what we're kind of really talking about here is career anxiety. Um, And I just wanted to kind of hear a bit more from you on that. Uh, because it really felt like you kind of went on a journey and one that I, again, I really identify with where it's that realization of this isn't what I thought it would be. And then at least for me, the next step was, and now I'm going to internalize this as my fault. And it just caused caused so much stress for me. Um, So yeah, okay. You know, what, 
I'd just love to hear more about your own experiences and those sorts and that kind of career anxiety. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I think, as you mentioned, and as I write in the book, when I first started working after university, I definitely just had a sense of disappointment because, you know, especially when you're like a junior entry level employee, a lot of the work you do is very boring. Office life can be incredibly mundane. The first company I worked at, which I didn't um, write about in too much depth, um, but it was just quite boring. It was a very boring place to work. And it was it was good in hindsight. I can see that it was good in lots of other ways. Like actually, I was really allowed lots of responsibility. I was paid fairly. I was given pay rises. Um, and so in that respect, it was, you know, it was great, but it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. And so I spent most of the time that I was there thinking about leaving and planning on leaving and never really committing to it as my actual job, even though I ended up staying there for nearly two years. Um, And then I got into a more exciting job, you know, like a a sort of proper shiny swish London ad agency. And, you know, it was a little bit more exciting at first, but then it's soon the same kind of things crop up and, and, and new issues as well, because that's where I first kind of encountered these really gendered dynamics in the workplace where, because I was like a 22, 23 year old young woman, I, I was expected to be very deferential and kind of keep my opinions to myself, which uh, I would say is not, very, <laughs> it's not, uh, it's not my natural personality to put it that way. Um, so I had to spend a lot of just energy, just kind of trying to fit, into this mold and, and I found it really tough. And so for the entire time that I worked in advertising, which is five years, I spent a lot of time G-chatting my best friend, which is actually funny because that helped me to write um, a lot of those sections of the book because I literally went back into our old G-chats and like downloaded old messages. And I've got like, some of them are actually in the book. Like those are literally as we were messaging each other, those are, you know, printed as is in the book. Um, and it was very clear that I never really enjoyed working in advertising. And I knew even at the time I'd always kind of say to him, oh, by this time next year, I need to not be working in advertising. And I think I pretty much said that for five years on the trot until I finally quit. So it was definitely, and I found that really tough because, you know, I'd gone to this school and, you know, you're kind of chasing grades and then you go to a good university and it's all towards the aim of getting a good job, which then I got and realizing that that wasn't going to work for me, I, I didn't have any, I didn't really have any ideas on what I wanted to do next. It took me a while to come around to the idea that I was going to try my hand at writing and journalism, which is kind of what I'd always wanted to do, but I just kind of dismissed it out of hand because it seemed too hard to get into. And it seemed like you need to do a lot of unpaid work to get into it. It didn't pay very well. Um, and so it took me a while to kind of finally decide to pursue that seriously um but it's just such a confusing time and also this is 2011 like it's in the aftermath of the financial crash jobs were thin on the ground anyway like graduate jobs were thin on the ground anyway so in a way you kind of feel like you have to cling on to what you have um and so deciding to kind of let go of that structure and become self-employed was very very difficult like until I actually quit and literally was freelancing that wasn't ever a career path that I'd envisioned myself taking. I, 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 don't, I didn't really have uh, a very good perception of freelancing. I remember actually quite early on, I spoke to a recruiter because I was still kind of thinking about going back into advertising, getting a full-time job. 
And I was with this recruiter and they forwarded me an email, I think from an ad agency that was kind of looking for someone to fill some sort of temporary contract. And at the bottom of it, this recruiter obviously hadn't realised that they'd sent me this bit, but they were like, they were sort of speculating on why I might be freelance. And they were sort of like, oh, well, you know, the freelancers generally aren't as good. They tend to be the ones who can't get, you know, like a proper job. And so that was the perception that they had. And maybe that was slightly the perception that I had as well, of freelancing, that, you know, you choose it as a default if you can't get a solid, stable job somewhere. Whereas obviously we know that there are so many reasons for it. And I think things have changed massively in the kind of five or six years since. So I did not choose self-employment. It just kind of happened to me by virtue of quitting one job, not having another lined up and needing to earn money in the meantime. There's so much there that, again, it just really rings true for me. I mean, this idea that freelancing is a plan B or that, you know, there was no, there was no freelancing booth at my school career fair nor my university fair. It was never talked about. I definitely had that same perception of it's something that you do if you can't get a quote unquote real job. And I completely agree. I do think things have really, really changed um, in, you know, over the last few years. And I think there's also kind of something to be said for the fact that um, I um, I started freelancing because I got made redundant. Mm. Um, incidentally, interestingly, from the same company that you quit to go freelance <laughs> from, um, which maybe we can get into in a minute. Maybe that's more of a blessing in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. We, we can, we'll get into that in a minute. But, um, and 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 I, I I mean, of course, I will never know this, but I had long wanted, I'd long started to suspect that freelancing was for me, but I was way too scared to do it. And I don't know if I would have taken the plunge had I not lost my job. Um, but there's also something that, you know, on the one hand, whilst I think, you know, I, my, I just feel, I feel like I really hit my stride since going freelance. And of course, that's not to say there haven't been some major downs as well as ups, but I just feel like I've hit my stride. However, I'm also very frustrated and quite angry about the fact that I feel like I've had to leave the security of the traditional workforce to do that. Like, it just feels like a real double-edged sword. I think, you know, there's kind of, um, there's kind of been a lot said about this, about how there's kind of two ways to look at the rise of women who become self-employed or entrepreneurs. And one is how empowering that is for them to do their own thing. And then on on the flip side, there is also the question of, well, what pushed them out of yeah, traditional employment? Definitely. I mean, the question is, did I jump or was I pushed? And yeah. to be honest, I think I was pushed out of it. And I'm really, really glad that I was. And I'm so glad that I'm self-employed. And it's it's funny to me how well it suits me. Um, and I, I definitely wouldn't change it, wouldn't go back for the world. But at the time, it was kind of forced upon me because I found working in offices and working at agencies so toxic and so unbearable that I just needed to escape. So even though it's had a kind of positive outcome, that's, that's you know, it just so happens that things have turned out well for me, but also they could also not have done. And then I'd mm. probably feel a bit more resentful about it, or maybe I'd have gone looking for a full-time job again. Um, and it does make me worry because... While I am really glad that I'm self-employed, it has occurred to me that it's a bit of a cop-out in a way, because instead of staying in those systems and trying to change them, you know, I'm not a martyr, so I'm not, I just want to be happy. 
But it does occur to me that people who kind of have the right mindset end up being pushed out by these companies. If you're not into office politics, if you're not willing to put up with racism and sexism and casual misogyny in the workplace and generally generally being treated like shit, then you'll often end up leaving. And then it means that the people who are left behind and who progress up to management levels are the really toxic ones. So I do, it it does cross my mind. And like I say, I'm not a martyr. I just kind of want to be happy and be fulfilled by my work. But I am aware of the fact that lots of really valuable people are being pushed out of the workplace and therefore not ascending to managerial roles where they, you know, actually have control and become gatekeepers. And instead, they're all these solo entities. And I don't necessarily think that's a good thing for the traditional workforce. If you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy The Writer's Co-op, hosted by Wu Dan Yan and Jenny Gritters. The Writer's Co-op focuses on what it's like to run a freelance business of your own, and writers Wu Dan and Jenny are candid about talking about freelance pay, contracts, saying no to work, and more. This season, every episode features a live coaching session with freelancers. The goal is to dig into issues like imposter syndrome, developing confidence, choosing between freelancing and a full-time job, money mindsets, finding balance in work and life, and so much more. You can listen anywhere you find your podcasts. There was something else I was really keen to talk to you about, um, which is on a similar theme, which was around privilege and work, because I certainly having haven't seen it talked about in the way that you talk about it um and it's you know that once you say it, it's all so obvious but I don't think it's ever been articulated um you talk about the advantages of the middle class they have in the workplace around like good taste and behavioral codes um and and so many other things along those lines um and I think that people for a lot of people they're gonna read that and and it's gonna change their perspective for the first time um but at the same time, you, you also talk about how resistant we are to admitting our privilege or seeing privileges um, because it diminishes from our own achievements. Um, could you expand a bit more about like, yeah, what you were meaning to describe around privilege in the workplace, how, how it's played out, but also how do you in yourself um, think about that idea of hard work versus privilege in, in the workplace? Yeah, I mean, I think how privilege plays a role in uh, career success is something that I've become way more aware of since becoming self-employed and becoming, you know, a journalist and a writer and working in media. Because, my God, if there's an industry where being middle class or upper middle class is a massive advantage, it is media. Like, it's the least meritocratic industry ever and I say this as somebody who benefits from certain privileges like I did go to private school whether or not it was on a scholarship is that's only relevant in, insofar as kind of painting a picture as to my I guess family background but overall I, I benefited from the privileges of you know the academics and having a certain network and being taught to present yourself in a certain way although to be honest I think I got that from my parents um 
but you know just kind of being taught to communicate in a certain way which then translates into the workplace and people like oh she's well spoken and oh she's professional and you're just kind of told certain things and, and given this information which is like a secret kind of cheat code um and like I said I think I've become so much more aware of it in the past few years because also class is one thing but then also money like literally how much money you have is another can you afford to do an unpaid internship I couldn't you know do you have somewhere to live in London have your parents bought you a flat are they paying your rent whilst you do all of this stuff like these were not things you know my parents live in London but even with that I didn't feel able to take on unpaid internships so like god knows what it's like if your parents just don't live in London like I, I really did not feel like it was an option for me and I also didn't feel like journalism was an option for me because I was like that's not really a financially stable career path so I was like I just need to do the safe thing get a job in advertising have a stable salary and it's all fine um and as you say I think people are so dishonest about it um and they kind of obfuscate the reality of their background they downplay it like it's it's you know people don't like we don't like nepotism we don't like privilege we don't like class or we say we don't and so people have learned to kind of downplay the role that their family background or their upbringing plays in allowing them to get to the position they are because they think it diminishes their achievements and you know what maybe it does diminish your achievements like you know the fact that you the fact that I went to private school has certainly opened doors for me that wouldn't have been open had I gone to a state school I don't think like I I don't know that I would be in the same career position. I'm, I'm not sure that I would, but why can't people just admit that? Like that's the least you can do if you have this advantage, just say it. It doesn't take anything away from you and it makes it a lot easier on other people who don't have those advantages to then evaluate their likely chances, chances of success. They're like, okay, well, I don't have parents who are paying my way for the first half of my 20s and actually that's why it's taking me a bit longer to get published and that's why it's taking me longer to build up you know a body of work as a freelance writer because I'm also holding down a full-time job you know I it is really baffling to me and I, I'm not being deliberately obtuse but it's really baffling to me that people can't find it in themselves to just be honest about the advantages they have because it's, it, it really doesn't take anything away from you. I agree. But then I also just think about how it's so na natural for people to compare up. So I think a lot mm. of people don't actually realize their privileges that they have. Yeah. So yeah, that's very true. Um, it's taken me. If you if yeah. know middle class people, then that seems normal to you. And I think actually I find that with, you know, some people that I went to school with and people I went to uni with, I went to Oxford. So it's obviously very kind of middle class upper middle class very wealthy people and because that's all they've ever known they don't realize that they're in the kind of like upper upper percentile of wealth and income not even just in the country but in the world or they know it on a conceptual level but they don't really really know it and I think just coming from the background that I came from which is an immigrant background grew up in a council estate didn't have a lot of money it's very clear to me how big the gulf is between the wealthy upper middle classes in this country and everyone else and so you're right I think a lot of it is just ignorant um but yeah and yeah and a bit of I guess also it's that human nature to focus on what you don't have because there are all these subtle differences mm. because mm -hmm. um I haven't been bought a flat 
Um, but I have parents in London. So when I was starting my startup career, I could live there um, mm. and have low salaries. But I've noticed I become, I, it's really easy for me to be fixated on the differences that I not had versus do had. So I think there's also, yeah. but it's not just that as well, because obviously you just need to sit down and think about it and then you work out what you have had. But there's <laughs> there's also, there's another side that I'd love to discuss, which is around that 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 myth that you talk about, the myth of meritocracy. Um, and um, you're right that no one's gonna literally take away what you've achieved from you, but diminishing it does seem to kind of be a violation on who we are as people and our worth. Mm. So um, if someone says to me, oh, you only have this podcast because you went to private school and your parents live in London and blah, blah, blah. Um, it, it it does, it, it, it can feel like you've become disengaged. It's confronting. From your, yeah, it's, yeah. Mm. And, you know, everyone has their struggles. And like you say, people compare upwards and everyone tends to focus on the kind of things that they have had in life that have been hard for them. So I can see that. And you know, I, I think I quoted a, an essay that Roxanne Gay um, wrote called Peculiar Benefits. That's how she refers to sort of privilege. And she says something like, everyone has their struggles. And so we tend to resent hearing that we've had it easy, mm. which yeah. makes perfect sense. But I, I do think it just requires like a level of objectivity um, and being able to kind of just zoom out and look at the bigger picture and think, gosh, actually, if you're privately educated, that puts you in 7% of the population, like 7% of kids in the UK are privately educated. That is, and yet all of these industries are dominated by the privately educated. It's funny, like, I always bang on about it. I think it's quite clear that I'm not pro-private schools, um, despite having been to one myself. Um, but that's that's something I, uh, we've, we have actually talked about this on the podcast before we kind of did basically a whole episode about it, but um, it, I want to link this back. What I'm about to say, I'm going to link back to something you said right at the very beginning. So um, what well, both Tiffany and I went to private schools, so we went to the same one together, um, another London based one. Um, so, and it's, a, I find it a hard thing to talk about because it's partly not only my story um kind of how what you were talking about with um you know asking your parents for their input into your book um it's it's more than just my story kind of it's the decision to go to private school um also as a immigrant from an immigrant family um it's just it's just more it's just nuanced to a certain extent and it's beyond just me um so for me, part of it is um, is that some aspects of our stories are also our family stories as well. And that can sometimes be hard to talk about, particularly in, uh, more so in public, I think, um, like kind of, for example, on a podcast um, than in private. But that is not to say that we shouldn't be having these conversations. And we also, there's no reason why one can't do their own internal work and their own private work on the role that their personal privileges have played as well. Um, but that's kind of, something that I sort of I think a lot about as well mm. not to say that's of course not to say that sorry Tiffany no I was gonna say I um I think I think what is important though is when you have been on the inside particularly in a way all of us for different reasons have an outsider's lens because I'm also from an immigrant background but when you have that when you have that insider information about how it we know the unfair advantage that it gives you I do think it is our duty to 
be explicit about that, even though it's super uncomfortable yeah. to admit. Yeah, that's, oh, of, that's of what I think. I really, yeah. really think that. Um, it's interesting, like a couple of years ago, I think uh, the writer Dolly Alderton wrote a piece in the Sunday Times style about private mm-hmm. education. And she was that. really explicit about the unfair advantages it had conferred upon her. And I thought it was great. Like I read it, you know, read it in the morning. It was like, cool. Logged back on a couple of hours later and she's being torn to shreds for it. And I just thought, but this is what you should be doing. Like she can't go back in time and change it. And who, like, who knows if anybody would, would want to. And she's clearly very aware of the advantages it's given her. Like I can, it makes people angry to hear it. And I, and I definitely understand it, but kind of peeling back that veil of secrecy, I think is so important. I think more people should admit to that. And so it was strange to see someone being crucified for that honesty when there are a lot of privately educated people who very quietly sit there and accept the benefits without ever admitting to the fact that they have had them. Yes, and because those benefits are to such an, to a certain extent so... It's, it's, I'm embarrassed to say how long it's taken me taken for me to realize what those benefits really look like and it's it's stuff that you've kind of articulated in the book it's just everything from from you know having the confidence to believe in in yourself essentially and even it's even Oxbridge stuff- coaching like yeah. I, yeah I'm sure you probably had that at your school I did yeah and like exactly. people don't talk about that very much I had like interview prep yeah and so um, people you then wonder why I think it came out as stat a couple of weeks ago that I can't remember which school it was, but um, one college in Cambridge in one year had accepted 22 students from the same private school. And I just thought that is an insane number for one college in one year. Like these kids have been prepped to the hilt to excel at exams and then interviews like I wasn't intimidated really walking into that environment, walking into the, like I, I, I had the same nerves you'd have as a teenager. Like I really wanted to get into Oxford, really wanted to do this degree. I really liked the look of the college. But even when I look back on that interview, what I can remember of it, I definitely handled myself with a confidence that was probably more than my years. And that came from years of private education and also an expectation that I would get in, if I'm mm. honest. Like my school very much expected that I would get in. Um, and having had those sorts of conversations and debates in like after school clubs for weeks or months in the lead up, you can't, you can't compete with that. Well, you can, but there's a clear advantage. And it's why I kind of, I don't know, I find it really strange when people talk about Oxbridge being elitist because... There are definitely things that those two universities should do differently to widen access. And even in terms of having, you know, I think they should have lower grade requirements for state educated students and and various things. Um, But for the most part, most professors and most academics are quite liberal. So they're quite aware of social injustice. And the problem starts years in advance of someone even getting an applicate like filling out an application and it really annoys me when governments 
kind of pass the buck and blame. They're like, Oxford needs to do better. And I'm like, you guys need to do better because you have been steadily defunding the state education system for years. And you should abolish private education and you haven't. So don't just like put the buck all on this institution, which is essentially the manifestation of years of division. Sorry, I've just gone on a bit of a rant there, but like, it's just no, something it, I feel so strongly about. Yeah, no, and it, it's an important one. It's it, it's again, it's that there's no, it's no kind of cherry picking of here, you know, let's pinpoint this very, very kind of like end point in the problem and focus everything on that. And rather than looking at the funnel for want of a better mm. um, phrase, um, let's take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk more about friendship dynamics and money. <laughs> book you talk about a subject that Anna and I often talk about which is shame regarding um, or the shame we feel regarding our work decisions that we've made Um, there's a bit after you leave Vice where you say that you're furious with yourself for not having made different decisions Um, and I think that's something a lot of us who have done career change or suddenly lost our jobs or whatever it might be might really identify with Um, And I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what that experience was like for you. And also, what would you say to anyone who might be beating themselves up in that way? Yeah, I mean, I think that those feelings definitely came from me being a bit of a, a lot of a perfectionist and a very kind of type A person who was always used to kind of ascending the ladder and like, you take off the grades, you take off the degree, you get the job, promotion, And so for me to suddenly just have this kind of rupture in what had been very linear progress in life up until that point was really destabilizing. And so I think I just, I spent a lot of time constructing these kind of alternate scenarios where what would I be doing now if I'd made this decision or if I'd gotten that job opportunity or if I hadn't been turned down for this or that, you know, and and just really beating myself up about it. Because the reality is you just cannot know. You cannot, like, I couldn't, I probably could have been, predicted that Vice was going to be a shit show, but like I couldn't have predicted that it was going to pan out in quite the way it had. I couldn't have predicted that my advertising career was going to pan out in the way that it had and that it it would make me so unhappy because if I'd known, I wouldn't have gone into it. So I think that was just more about kind of learning to let go a little bit and learning to forgive myself a little bit because I was really angry at myself for not having made different decisions that would have put me in a different scenario. But that's like wanting to be, like, you know, a fortune teller. Like <laughs> you, you do just kind of have to live with, you have to live with the reality of your decisions and know that you made the best decisions at the time with the information that you had, which is, which is what I think I had done up until that point. And then try and bounce back and also remember that certainly we're probably going to be working till we're in like our seventies. So there is plenty of time to, to get things right and start again and try again. And like, I had this weird idea when I was 25 that I was like too old to start over, which 
looking back on it now, it makes me laugh. But, you know, because I put five years into this industry and this career, I felt like, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to go back to the start and start again um, with writing, with journalism. And if I'd started that at 20, then where would I be now? And it's just it's just not helpful. It's not productive. Um, so I think a lot of that was just I tend to be really, really hard on myself professionally, um, which is an ongoing theme. And sometimes that's good because it makes me ambitious and it drives me to work harder. But other times that leads to real self-flagellation in a way that becomes really unproductive. And that's something that I think uh, really came to the forefront at that period of my life. How how has that dynamic in you changed as a result of writing this book? Because to a large extent, there is so much about your professional life in it and I guess there was kind of a certain extent to a certain extent um a great deal of sort of thinking stuff through and kind of introspection about that so how how has that changed that that dynamic that you were talking about with the self-flagellation one which I again very much relate to um I think I just felt quite sorry for my younger self like honestly some of the stuff that came back to me and that I wrote down it just kind of made me laugh like how mean I was to myself and like I remember I even had an edit note for my agent who I wrote about this running document I had when I was running Women Who Mm, where after every event just bizarre like after every event that they always went well like in hindsight but I'd come home and the first thing I'd do is write down everything that had gone wrong in this running list called mistakes and my agent was like just put like loads of questions she was like a taker like like essentially being like what like what is this? Like, as in, I can't believe you used to do this to yourself. And that's been right from the start of my career. Like, I remember I applied for this really competitive grad scheme when I was 21 and I didn't get it. And after, like, being devastated, I just, like, sat down and, like, started, like, conjecturing about what had what I'd done wrong and, and being really tough on myself about it. Um, so I definitely look back at... But it's also because I was so painfully ambitious and... I put so much stock in work because also for me, work, that's my route to financial success and financial independence. Like I don't have rich parents. Like I knew they weren't going to be able to help me get on the housing ladder. Like I I didn't always feel like I had a safety net in the same way that some of my really kind of upper middle class friends have. Um, You know, I've always got bed to sleep in as my mum loves to remind me. Um, but I very much felt like if I wanted to have a decent life, I, the only way I was going to do that was through work. And so I put a lot of pressure on myself to make sure that work went well. So when it didn't go well, I was devastated. Um, and I think, you know, it's probably partly because I've managed to take a few things off my list that I feel more relaxed now. And also partly maybe just getting a bit older. Um, like I still have high standards, but Mm. shall I say I'm more relaxed I feel like if my editor is listening to this she'll like I'm not that relaxed um but I'm not as mean to myself as I used to be so yeah I think what you're touching on there as well is where we come from or our backgrounds and our stories how they can impact how we move through the world of work and how um it can actually make it a lot harder for ourselves because you're talking about that pressure you put on yourself um and just essentially how much harder it was for you from your experiences um, 
to be in the world of work versus maybe some other people who didn't don't have that same pressure um and even that is it's like a I don't want to say privilege again, but even, but no, not having, but it, have, it, but it is, of is. It is another privilege, isn't it? To not have internalized those, that level of pressure on yourself, because yeah, I'm sure it added a lot of friction and hardship to the day-to-day of you being in the world of work. There, there was a certain nonchalance to a lot of the kind of white middle-class men that I worked with and like, you know, my peers, like who was sort of the same age as me and doing the same job as me. There was a certain nonchalance to the way they conducted themselves in the office that I think actually probably helped them thrive um, because it's all about kind of yeah. buddying up and building personal relationships. And they seemed so happy often to be quite like mediocre, quite average or to not work too hard. And things seemed to work out for them fine. Meanwhile, I was like busting my hump and still finding myself struggling, um, which I think is a really kind of curious thing about office politics and office dynamics where your success isn't necessarily contingent on how hard you work. And I definitely come from about a, you know, immigrant, immigrant West African background where it's like education, hard work is everything. And then I went to the school, which was very feminist and very academic and, you know, very much about hard work, which I think is a good thing. And so I then emerged into the world of work being like, right, all I have to do to succeed is just work really hard. And it took a couple of years for me to realize that that isn't actually the key to success a lot of the time. Um, And again, I found that really hard to wrap my head around. And, you know, if I were to go into a workplace now, knowing what I now know, I think it'd be very different. Like even, you know, I remember after I'd left Vice, I briefly freelanced at this ad agency for three months. And I'd kind of learned some of these lessons by then. And I knew the way to get ahead was to just make myself really light. And so that's what I did. And I had so much more of a better time there to the point where like I'd been there for three months and on my final day they sent an email around the entire office announcing that I was leaving and everyone like we went for drinks afterwards it's like leaving drinks I never had leaving drinks at any of my previous jobs so I'd been for years but I'd I'd like crack the code by that point like I did not work very hard at this freelance job I barely did anything I just went around making friends with people and that, that was the key to success. Like, how fucked up is that? Yeah. Yeah. The only ever issues I've had at work have been, like, people stuff. Um, and I've it's never been about the work. And I've always found that really challenging as, like, a question. Yeah, exactly. I've, right, that's so true. I have never, ever been pulled up on the quality of my work. But I did have interpersonal issues. So, yeah, what does that say? I interviewed Anna for one of my newsletters and there's something she said that really stood out for me, which was around how our friends are like mirrors. And in your book, you talk a lot about friendship dynamics um, and money. Um, And there's a couple of stories that kind of almost make your jaw drop. Uh, I don't know whether to read the book to find them out, I think. Um, But... (laughs) (laughs) uh, what I was thinking as I was reading about these um, almost like butt-clenching mo- moments, <laughs> again, to use something Anna says sometimes, um, was if I was to write a book about how like all my friends had a boyfriend, but I didn't have a boyfriend, um, 
I don't think it would have the same reaction or tension or risk the same reaction than if I was to write a book about the differences between money and my friends. Um, because I think there's something extremely like emotional and visceral when it comes to money. And I think how that can play out in friendship dynamics can be really interesting. Um, mm. why, why do you think that is? Uh, really good question. I think, how do I put this? It's weird. I didn't actually feel any real compunction. I think initially maybe when I set out to write it, when I was writing my proposal or when I first started writing it, I felt a bit nervous. I was like, God, how, how are some of my friends going to receive this? But by the end, it just became clear to me that the things that I had to say not only were so necessary, but were also so universal. Like I, I think a lot of people will kind of relate to the position I'm in of sometimes finding yourself in social situations where you're the one who doesn't have a lot of money. And, and I think in my situation, it was more about kind of having family money um, because I was always kind of working, always earning. So it's like, I could always keep up with my friends socially, but our lives were really diverging when it came to things like living situations and some people were renting and others were buying flats with parental help or being given flats. Um, I think it's awkward because no one wants to admit that it's kind of come back, it kind of come back, it kind of comes back to what we were saying earlier, but nobody wants to admit that actually part of their success or part of their lifestyle is unearned, especially when these are people that you've grown up with, um, you know, maybe gone to school with, gone to university with, and there is this kind of myth of meritocracy. And I definitely was kind of sucked in and thought, oh, okay, well, all of our lives are going to kind of pan out roughly the same. Like, we've gone to the same school, we've gone to the same uni, we're all ambitious, we've all got good jobs. And then in your 20s, you really start to see the differences emerge. And sometimes those differences are because of different career paths. But in my case, it was very much because of family background. And I don't know, like, I, I can't really speak to what, any of my friends thought or feel about this and it's interesting because I didn't actually ask them whether it's something that ever crossed their mind so I only really wrote about it from my perspective which is that it's some I found it quite embittering sometimes to see people who had so much be quite nonchalant about it or be secretive about it um and I spent a lot of my 20s feeling very Envious is, you know, it's partial, partially envy, like who wouldn't want to be gifted a flat or hundreds of thousands of pounds as a deposit, but also infuriated that it just felt so unfair. I was like, I work really hard and I don't have half as much as these people. And sometimes there were people who I didn't think were working particularly hard. So that felt even more embittering. So... And it, it's very awkward to say that to your friends, you know, who is going to bring that up? Like, I feel envious or bitter or jealous about the fact that you have this huge advantage and I don't. That's not a fun conversation to have. So, yeah. I actually did have this conversation with a friend once. Um, How did that go? It just popped into my mind. Well, do you know what? Um, we kind of talked about how life is a bit of things are a trade-off because um maybe my dad wasn't like some hotshot lawyer but he was much more around and so like I don't know I was just um 
so I'm just trying to be careful with what I say because I don't want to criticize anyone's um, <laughs> things. Mm. But but um, it was an interesting conversation because I think we all look at each other and our friends and our and what we have and don't have. But I think it's interesting to sort of consider what the pros and cons or what that meant for your lives in a way kind of beyond beyond money. Um, so if I think about friends, for example, who earn a lot more than me, their careers and what they do might be very far removed from something that I want to, that I want to do. Um, mm. And I wonder whether there's value in actually having these conversations because then you can build maybe a bit of awareness about different choices and what they mean. Um, yeah. I think the thing for me is that it wasn't really about individual choices because I never felt a way about friends who are working in corporate jobs because they'd chosen that and they were working all hours of day and night and I was sitting at home cushy like my freelance writing job like it, I think this it was about the stuff that wasn't within our control mm. or wasn't about choice because I was like yeah you work you seemingly work 24 hours a day like fair enough that you're paid double what I'm paid like I'm like I, I also don't want to do that job like it's reasonably something I could have gone into corporate law you know, that is something that was absolutely open to me as an option, but I chose not to do that. So fair enough, you're being paid. And, you know, we can talk, we can get into, you know, which which um, industries are compensated well and, and whatnot. But like, just in terms of kind of on the surface of it, I didn't have any resentment about that. It was very much about the kind of bigger picture family situations where it was like, this is just a lottery um, that I found really difficult to deal with. So the stuff that's not about personal choices. I think the point that's really interesting to me, though, is that actually, for the most part, it is incredibly difficult to have these conversations. And at least the fact that it it has it came up for you, Tiffany, in some capacity. I mean, that that is the point is that for the most part, um, again, there was so much in there that where you were talking about the differences between in friendship groups kind of monetary differences in friendship groups of which so of which a lot of that is to do with family money it's just not talked about there is just this culture of silence we don't talk about it and I find that it just becomes increasingly harder as you get older because Mm. once you hit your 30s it you can't hide it anymore because that is when oh suddenly people have bought houses or they're they're making certain life choices where I think you actually even talk about this in the book where you know you're trying to do the mental you're trying to do the math and you're kind of like there is a massive gap here and oh that has been plugged by family money Mm. Um, or some 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 other source of money whatever it might be outside of um outside of earned money Mm. um is that kind of is that something kind of you're seeing how, how are things kind of changed for you sort of a lot of what you kind of focus on in the, in the book um, starts in your early twenties. Has, has that changed at all? Have the kind of friendship dynamics around money changed at all, either sort of as a result of you writing this or just general conversations? Um, have Do you know what? I'll be really honest. <laughs> Buying a fat last year changed things in the sense that a lot of those resentments, a lot of those resentments probably fell away. Mm. Um, and, I, and I won't pretend as though it's, I think there was an element of personal growth, but I also think finally getting the thing that I wanted and f- getting the thing that I felt other people had access to 
just made me happier. And so I don't think about it as much. And maybe, you know, I'm now 30. So like, I think your 30s are another point in time where people's lives change. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, are people upgrading their houses? Or are they like, are they, you know, <laughs> let's say people start having kids and it's like some people can afford to have a nanny because maybe their grandparents are bankrupt, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and some people can afford to, I, I, re- I reckon maybe the, maybe the next divide will be nannies. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't really know, but it's, it's just kind of how you organize your life around having children, um, which again is kind of influenced by money. Like I, I think there will probably be other shifts um, sort of over the course of my thirties. But I think for me, just on a personal level, that, mu- that milestone of, of getting my own flat, which was kind of the main thing that bothered me in my 20s. Once I'd achieved that, I think I just relaxed a lot. Mm. Um, and like I said, I'd love to pretend that's personal growth, but I think the reality is I just got what I wanted. <laughs> but that's that honesty, and which just from page one to the end of your book is just comes off the page I think is just so important and so lacking from the general conversation around money so um just I really really appreciate that and um I think that's really the power in in your book and just generally everything that you kind of talk about um I think my last question before we close out I just would love to know how has spending a significant amount of time writing and introspecting about money changed your relationship with money? I think it has definitely improved my relationship with money, which I wasn't expecting actually. Um, But in order to write this book about money and kind of explain my money story to other people, I had to spend quite a lot of time thinking about actions and behaviour and feelings that I'd experienced, especially over the past decade and trying to get to the root of them, trying to an extent to either fit them into a framework or just explain them. And first of all, I had to understand them myself. And so something I talk about in the book is having a lot of financial anxiety um, in my 20s and just being quite panicky about money. Like I've always been very financially literate and, you know, technically good with money in quotation marks, but I very rarely felt good about money. Um, mm. And that led me to do some, it just led me to be quite self-flagellating is a kind of common recurrent theme and to just be really just kind of tight with myself and to not really kind of allow myself to enjoy money or spend money. And I think unpacking that and realizing why I was that way has definitely it allowed me to kind of add a layer of rationality to the way I respond to certain situations because then I could be like, Otega, you're doing that thing you do again where you're spiraling about a 50 quid expense that you can definitely afford. Be rational. Um, and, and, you know, just being able to kind of trace the pattern of that happening at multiple times over my 20s. It's, it's very much now that I'm able to kind of give myself a talking to when I feel myself spiraling slash I can kind of, avert the spiral before it even happens um and I couldn't do that three years ago um so I do credit writing the book with that which I'm I'm very very grateful for I don't have a perfect relationship with money by any means but it's definitely a lot better now than it was 
three years ago when I started writing the book. Well, thank you so much for talking to us um, about money and work and all these topics. As we said, we absolutely adored your book and everybody who's listening needs to pre-order it and read it and also maybe have the bravery to have some bold conversations around money after having read it. But thank you so much, Otega. We really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for having me. This was lovely. Bye. You are listening to Is This Working? Hosted by Anna Cogerado and Tiffany Philippou. Produced by Chris Bannister. Please like and subscribe and you can find us in all of your favourite podcasting apps. And also just a quick note before we go to let you know that we are now giving talks at companies. So if you would like to hear us live at your workplace, email us at isthisworkingshow at gmail.com and we will send you something that you can pass along to your head of people or HR department. Thanks very much.